Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of Primo local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on RFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Listeners, I'm Michael Helzinger, your host today, and a very, very warm welcome to the first episode of the Murky Waters podcast. In this episode, I talk with an expert about our fear of sharks. I wanted to know why we fear sharks so much, how this fear affects the way we treat them, where it all started, and we also dive into shark bite statistics and a whole lot more. The expert is Sam Fraser Baxter. Sam wrote a master's thesis on the relationship between human attitudes to sharks following shark bites. Sam is currently the communications and marketing advisor for the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research for New Zealand, known as NIWA. So without further ado, let's sink our teeth into this interview with Sam. Hi Sam, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Mikey. So before we get started, could you please introduce yourself and tell us what got you into studying sharks and why? Hello listeners, I'm Sam Fraser-Baxter. I am a writer and a science communicator. I also surf a lot and spearfish, so I spend a lot of time in the ocean. So like most people that spend a lot of time in the ocean, I've always been interested in sharks. I got stuck into studying sharks at university in a Masters of Science Communication at Otago. What inspired it was Fanning's run-in with a white shark in South Africa in competition live on television. I was really interested in the way people responded to that event and the way people created stories around the event and the way theories surfaced. At the time I was coming up with my research topic for my master's, I had a look into the academia, the research, and found that there was space for study exploring the media's reportage of shark bites and the way different groups and societies respond to shark bites. So. Yeah, that really got me in deep. (laughs) (laughs) How did you go about filling this gap, Sam? What did you end up studying? Basically, the year before 2015, of course, was the year of the shark cull in Western Australia. Yep. And you'd know a little bit about that being from Western Australia. Over 15 years in Western Australia, there was this unprecedented surge in shark bites and shark bite fatalities. So I had a look into the academia and what people were researching and my supervisor saw that there was space for a study that would explore the language the media used to cover shark bites and to use media reporting of shark bites in West Australia as a way to explore how policy comes about. And the policy in that case was killing sharks. But funnily enough, we designed the study And two months later, someone published a paper basically using the same methods on the same topic with all these great results. 
but there are a lot of shark bites in New South Wales, Australia in 2015. So mm-hmm. we did a similar study exploring those ones. What species of shark is your favourite? Take a guess. Great white. Boom. Got it. It could be considered a bit of a cop-out because it's like the biggest shark and the most epic shark. But for me, I find it fascinating because it's the most overrepresented and misunderstood shark in the world. You know, there's so much that isn't known about white sharks, its population, numbers, its migrations, the mating and pupping processes. And it's definitely the most feared and revered species in the ocean. But I think the fact that there's so much attention that gets paid to the white shark, despite that, there's so much we don't know about it. You know, it's really mysterious and cool, I think. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is the role in the media in creating a fear for sharks? Historically, we know that the media have played a really powerful role in sensationalizing shark bites and that's been going on since world war one there are a string of shark bites i think it was 1915 in new jersey america where there was something like three fatalities in five days and that was big first event for the media and covering shark bites and at the time people didn't know much about sharks you had politicians talking about netting the whole of the american coast and suddenly there was this monster in the water and That kind of demonization of sharks by the media has been going on ever since. On this note too, this all harkens back to Jaws, Steven Spielberg's hit in 1975. That film was absolutely seminal in creating this demonic perception of sharks as man-eaters. And that film created this false narrative around shark behavior being this idea of a rogue shark so in the past when we talk about rogue animals we're talking about some kind of predator be it terrestrial or oceanic that has somehow got a taste for humans and realized that oh i can hunt humans these guys are defenseless and they do it once then they keep on doing it and we have seen examples of terrestrial rogue animals the most prolific being tigers in India and Tibet. So people knew about terrestrial rogue animals. These animals did exist on land. But what Jaws does, it created this idea of a rogue shark, this shark that killed a human, ate it, and realized, oh, I'll just keep doing this because these guys are easy prey. In 1975, when it was released, so many people who saw the film had probably never seen a documentary or any footage about sharks in their natural environment. So their first encounter of sharks on screen was of this 25-foot monster just hunting people. As soon as Jaws was released and there was this narrative of a rogue shark and the idea that sharks kill people, almost overnight the world's perceptions of sharks shifted completely and for the last 30 years there's been this battle by scientists and conservationists to try and undo that negative messaging and public misconceptions about sharks Mm -hmm. we know that when someone gets bit by a shark historically the media will report on it as much as they can and they create this monster 
and this misrepresentation of sharks as this beast which is now stalking the coast and everyone's in trouble kind of thing. So, yeah, in the past, the media has been really powerful and influential in, in that sense. But in my study and the study before me exploring the media's reportage of shark bites in Western Australia, we've started to see a shift in language and the way the media cover shark bites, which is really cool. So in terms of shift in language, can you give us an example? So in the past, the media have tended to use sensationalized words like yes. demons stalk coast and create these really graphic vivid stories about people getting ripped apart yeah. and one thing they've done which is prevalent in lots of historic reporting of shark bites is they use these narratives of criminality they paint this picture of sharks and shark bites using the same language that they would for like a a stalk or someone committing a hit and run so it will be words like shark stalks or shark lurks from the deep comes out of nowhere didn't see it coming all these kind of words and phrases what that does is it draws on these narratives that we know from crime reporting and it communicates this message that there is a criminal on the loose and we've got to bring them to justice so that style of reporting implies that we need to do something and take action. Unfortunately, in the past, quite often that's resulted in people killing sharks. So you feel like the fear that they've created dictates a lot of how we treat sharks? Yeah, and it's so interesting that once I got into the academia, to what extent storytelling and narratives become involved in the way these misrepresentations drive action. In the past, once you've got the media creating this storm of shark coverage and creating this false idea that the sharks are kind of moving in and we're all in trouble, what you often get is a panicked public. In the past, there's been this playbook which goes, there's a number of shark bites in the area in a confined time. It could be a year, it could be five years the media hop on it and create this narrative that we're under attack and then the public panics and then inadvertently people put pressure on policymakers or politicians to solve the problem. So often that's been shark nets or shark cows. It's kind of like this Jaws narrative where you've got killer moves in, people panic, you've got to go kill a shark. A lot of it is driven by fear and emotion and politics rather than science. That doesn't surprise me at all, Sam, because I feel like I do personally have this irrational fear of sharks. I just want to understand and deconstruct this fear. Is it something that is a survival instinct because they are a predator? Or is it also a combination of that and the fear that's struck through the media and other sources? Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make to create a distinction between what could possibly be innate, like primal instincts kicking in and what's driven by cultural representation of sharks, perhaps in the media or perhaps in big films like Jaws. And it's tricky to untangle, but I think part of it is definitely innate. Being predated on is probably a normal instinctual response for humans. When we talk about fear, we've got to remember that despite the fact that we live these kind of modern lives, we still have these really deep set 
animal instincts that we evolved in the wild with. And I think that's something that we quite often forget. And we're not completely rational or robotic. We're absolutely emotional and instinctive. So when you think about this in the context of being fearful of being predated on by a shark in the water, perhaps you could say that's a natural response because fear is an intrinsic part of the human psyche. And I think back in the wild, we wouldn't have survived for very long if we were fearless. In the sense like, yeah, I think it's natural, but say if you had never, ever heard of a shark, you didn't know what it was, you encountered one in the water, what do you think you'd do? You didn't have this prejudice or this idea that they're a killer. You'd be scared, but you wouldn't be freaking out. Like most people have never seen a shark and most people will never see a shark and most people will never be bit by a shark because it's almost never happens. But despite this, most people I think that use the ocean have some kind of fear of sharks. By and large, this is driven by cultural and popular representation of sharks and shark behavior as killers out to get you, which is completely untrue. Said that a lot of people haven't seen sharks. And I think this is so true. The sharks that they think of are the sharks that they see in movies and documentaries. But the real sharks, and if you've seen them in the wild, are quite different to what you'd expect. So I want to ask you a question about ecotourism. Do you believe this is a good way for people to, I guess, conquer their fear? Yeah, definitely. And I'm pretty sure there have been studies on the way people's attitudes towards sharks changes when they see one in person or when they're more educated about them. They'll support conservation and they'll be thinking a lot more about science. So I think in terms of shifting negative attitudes about sharks, ecotourism, we know is definitely a good thing. But at the same time, you'll probably know this, yeah. cage diving is controversial and just about every place that people do it so ecotourism is a good thing but i think we've got to be sensitive about the way we do it have you ever swam with sharks uh yeah i have swam uh, i've done cage diving a bit in south africa and i've been spear fishing oh, wow. with uh, i was about a three meter tiger shark and wow. then, yeah incredible man i was mesmerized i was in awe but also of course quite scared because it's a shark and just everything you hear the funny thing is, as soon as you see sharks, you realize they're so different to what you've created. And because mm. I lifeguard at the beach in Western Australia, and some people just don't even swim because they're so scared of sharks. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you know, when you sometimes speak to people who aren't surfers or spend much time in the sea, and they're like, oh, do you see sharks? Do you often think about sharks? And I was surfing in Dunedin for years, and I never, ever saw a shark. And I was surfing like every day or every second day. So the reality is they're an apex predator and there aren't many of them. And very, very few people see sharks. Absolutely. What do you think is the reality of shark bites and their occurrence? Sharks do sometimes bite people. And there are normally about 150 shark bites each year globally with an average of about five being fatal. These numbers fluctuate quite a lot. But in most instances of shark bites, the shark will bite once and then swim away. And very rarely 
to sharks by more than once. Very few are fatal, like we said before, an average of about five out of 150. There's also like a, a lot of theories about why sharks bite people, but the prevailing scientific rhetoric is that shark bites are most likely a case of mistaken identity. Humans are not typical prey for sharks. If we were typical prey, sharks would bite humans more often and consume humans more often. But considering the billions of hours that humans spend in the sea, there's such a minuscule number of shark bites annually. I think that communicates quite clearly that humans are not suitable prey for sharks. We are not suitable prey. We're bony. We're skinny. Sharks normally eat fish. Yeah, like we're not oily or fatty. Yeah, they eat fin fish, seals. <laughs> whale carcasses whales exactly. would taste horrible especially me i'm so bony <laughs> <laughs> me too on that topic there's so many drone videos of large white sharks or great white sharks or tigers and bulls swimming through large groups of people or swimming adjacent or nearby to people swimming and the sharks are just crews they're so uninterested sharks spend large amounts of time without eating so the next meal for a shark is important and so you see like a shark swimming past humans and completely ignoring them it's pretty powerful i think you were talking about culls and nets before could you just explain to everyone how nets work a shark net is basically a gill net that like similar to a net that you use for fishing and it sits in the water and it sits off the beach and it covers a very very small portion of the beach what it's designed to do is catch sharks and kill them, particularly large sharks, based on the premise that if you lower the population of large sharks in a given area, you're also lowering the chance that a large shark and a human will interact in the water. Interestingly, a lot of people have this false idea of shark nets as a total barrier which creates a safe zone for them to swim in, but that's completely untrue. A shark net is basically a floating net which is designed to catch and kill sharks. And interestingly, they're absolutely indiscriminate. A shark net also catches any other large marine mammals or fish that are sharing those waters, so it could be whales or dolphins, for example. Shark nets have been used for decades in New South Wales and Queensland. And what I found interesting about the shark hull in Western Australia was that there was huge controversy and uproar about it. And the thing about the cull, even though it was terrible, was that it only did target sharks and they caught rays and I think they might have caught a turtle. But, you know, it was discriminate and their bycatch was far smaller and people were like protesting their shark cull on a beach in Manly in Sydney. And there was like a shark net sitting right off the coast there. So it's just really interesting the way that narratives are created. Like I said before, there's so much misinformation and people with ideas and it becomes emotional. Do you get all these funny phenomenon like that? People promoting a cull on a beach where a net sits off the coast. So if you were in the government's position and there had been a spike in incidences, just like the study where you were in New South Wales, what would you do in that position? Whoa. 
nothing. But, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's really important to remember that shark bites are practically lightning strike events. Yep. What they're often described in academia is an act of God. They're hard to predict and occur almost at random at any given time, anywhere where there's cost. So that said, they're really hard to manage and there's no silver bullet to managing shark bites. All of this said, you might wonder why a government would want to expend effort and money on these kind of events, but the reality is that people are scared and shark bites can be traumatic for coastal communities. That's something you've probably seen firsthand living in Perth, places like Gracetown, and that's something that I also encountered when I visited Ballina in New South Wales, is that the kind of morale of the town was lowered by a fatality and people were fearful. The biggest thing for me is definitely education mm-hmm. and informing water users about sharks and that there are sharks swimming in these areas and there's a higher chance that you'll be bit when the water's murky or perhaps after large rainfall events or at dawn and dusk. Because in the past, people have blamed governments for shark bites or afterwards they demand policy. But what you really want to do is you want to shift that onus of risk and onus of responsibility you want to shift that away from the governments and to the public and have people know that when they enter the ocean there's a small chance that they might interact with a shark and they might be bit and that they're responsible for their own safety i think it's also important to talk about the way we use shark bite statistics so when you've got five shark bites in a year and then you might have six the next year and then seven the next year. You could interpret that as an increase in shark bites over time. But because you've got such patchy and low numbers, it's really hard to create meaning out of shark bite statistics. So quite often you'll have politicians trying to politicize that data and be like, oh, we've got this huge increase over time, but it's just so tricky to create meaning out of that data when the numbers are so small and that's something any statistician would tell you that it's dodgy stats. People don't agree with their stats because people throw the stats out there like more likely to get struck by lightning etc. Is that true for people that do use the water a lot in areas regarded for having quite a few sharks? For someone who lives in a place like Ballinilla or Perth or any place which is well known to have high rates of shark bites, the statistics if you're surfing or spearfishing every day would be far greater. And I think for those communities, sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating when there's shark bites happen and they might be fearful or they might even be a little bit traumatized and you've got people being like, oh, well, you know, you're more likely to get hit by lightning or killed by a vending machine. I can empathize for them that that would be quite frustrating because these statistics and chances, even though we don't know much about them, they certainly vary in time and space. As long as people are educated and as long as people know about the importance of sharks and know that when they enter the ocean, they could be bit, and we've got an informed public we're less likely to have kind of witch hunt-like responses to shark bites. We go out and kill them. You know, people go, okay, well, 
that person was out surfing and it's an unfortunate event, but it happened. In my study, we identified this changing of a chapter, so to speak, where people were bringing up these ideas in response to shark bites in New South Wales in 2015. And that was one year after the cull. So I think the cull in West Australia played a big role in directing attention towards sharks and shark bites and people wanting to go kill sharks after they bite humans. So I think we've had like a watershed moment for public perceptions of sharks. And I think it's definitely changing in a positive way, which is really cool. Yeah, go sharkies. Good to hear. (laughs) Go sharks. If you could get one message out to everyone listening on the podcast about sharks and I guess just about the ocean in general, what would that be? The only thing sharks have to fear is fear itself. I thought that was quite apt for this podcast about sharks themed around fear. But I think if we can just be more mindful about talking about sharks and the way we live, like pick up rubbish, try and eat sustainably caught fish, like these kinds of things, and just keep learning. You know, if we've got an educated, empowered public, that's when we can really put pressure on policymakers and be more mindful about the way we live and the things we buy and that's when we get positive change and help out our sharky friends in the ocean take three for the sea keep learning eat sustainably i'd agree with all of them sam it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me and chums that's a wrap just to reiterate a couple of points sam made sharks on average kill five people per year worldwide five people Estimates report that humans kill around 100 million sharks every year. It seems that sharks have a lot more to fear from us than we do of them. That concludes the first episode of Murky Waters. I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is created by Michael Heltzinger, but it wouldn't happen without your support. Thank you for listening today. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram where I'll be sharing some fantastic content. Simply search for Murky Waters Podcast and please leave something behind, a like, a follow, share or just a review and you're always welcome to get in touch with any questions. Thank you to ORFM for everything. You guys are legends. And a shout out to these lovely people who have gone above and beyond to help. Nick White and Claire Concannon, both for the advice and insider tips. DJ KO for the introductory music. Chris Nodding for the logo. Kurt and Paramount Importance for the inspo, Alana for the video, and the talented Molly Devine for the preface music. And lastly, Sam, our exceptional guest today. Thanks for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge. If you also want to listen to more of Sam, make sure you check out the Wild Dunedin podcast, which is well worth a listen. Take care, people, of both yourselves and the planet, and I'll see you next episode.